and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Joel. Hi, Lauren. Um, we have a very special month. Indeed. We're kicking off today. Yes. And uh, I believe it was your idea to come up with this for for december specifically <laughs> many months ago many in fact. months ago yeah like, like it was just like this is what we're doing for december and we've been prepping ever since and frankly here's the thing we did a ho- couple of holiday episodes in our first year yeah we did a halloween episode we did a santa claus episode it was fine oh yeah there's nothing wrong with lots it. lots of fun but you know what it's time to mix it up and you know sometimes december can be a rough time for people they don't want to get into the christmas spirit it's dark, it's cold, you know, at least on the East Coast. And so we decided to really, um, really lean into that attitude <laughs> with with our December theme, theme. month, mm-hmm. which is Dictator December. <laughs> yes, that's right. Because <laughs> there's so many that we've talked about covering and it was like, it had just, there, but... But there's so much to talk about that it couldn't be just oh, yeah. one episode. No, it couldn't be one episode. And in fact, it was hard to really narrow down the dictators. Which is very you know, upsetting. You, you, <laughs> yeah, it's actually, it's it's not great. I mean, for society. But um, we have so many to choose from. We have so many to choose from. And we, we decided to forego the heavy hitters. Yeah. Because it's kind of a bummer, you guys. I mean, this month is going to be a bummer. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> That's why we eased you into December with the cannibal episode. <laughs> yeah. So when after you listened to that, I'm sure you were like, nothing can be worse than this. And maybe, I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Find out. Yep. So uh, yeah, today we're talking about a real, a real shithead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like we're going to be saying that a lot. Uh, today's episode is called Man of Steel, Heart of Ice, Joseph Stalin. I'm the bad guy. Duh. All right. Oh boy. How much do you know about Stalin? I know Stalin was uh, gorgeous as a young, <laughs> young man. Young Stalin. Young Stalin. Uh, such a, yes, that's that's about the nicest thing we could possibly say about uh, him. Yeah, I mean, he was a horrible person. I do know that he was a horrible person, mm-hmm. but what a beautiful head of hair on him when he was like 25. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So. Sexy Stalin. Our story begins on December 18th, 1879 in the peasant village of Gori, Georgia, where Yosip Viserionovich Zagashvila, later known as Joseph Stalin, was born. He was the son of Basarion Zagashvila, who was a cobbler, and Ekaterina Gilzelda, a washerwoman. He was their only child to survive past infancy, and he was nicknamed Soso, which was a diminutive of Yosef. Okay. So he was a frail child, let's say that. Mm. At age seven, um, Joseph contracted smallpox, um, which left his face very scarred. The family lived in poverty, moving through nine different rented rooms during 10 years. His father became an alcoholic who drunkenly beat Joseph and his mother. And to escape, his mother took Joseph and moved into the house of a family friend, Father Christopher Charkviani. So his mother worked as a house cleaner and launderer and was determined to send her son to school. Mm-hmm. In late 1888, when he was nine years old, Joseph enrolled at the Gory Church School, he, where he excelled academically and was a choir boy. Mm-hmm. At age 12, he was injured in a carriage accident, which caused a deformity to his left arm. The other village children treated him cruelly, instilling in him a sense of inferiority. 
And because of this, Joseph began a quest for greatness and respect. And he also developed a cruel streak for those who crossed him. He did do well in school, and his efforts gained him a scholarship to the Tiflis Spiritual Seminary in 1894. So Tiflis um, is the old name for Tbilisi, the oh, current yeah. capital of Georgia. Okay. So um, he joined 600 trainee priests who boarded at the institution, and a year later he came in contact with Mesam Dasi, meaning the third group, which was a secret organization that supported Georgian independence from Russia. Hmm. Some of the members were socialists who introduced him to the writings of Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin. Joseph joined the group in 1898, and though he in seminary school, he left the following year. Accounts differ as to the reason. Official school records state he was unable to pay the tuition and withdrew, but it's also speculated he was asked to leave due to his political views challenging the czarist regime of Nicholas II. So Joseph chose not to return home, but he stayed in Tiflis, devoting his time to the revolutionary movement. Um, For a time, he found work as a tutor and later as a meteorologist at the Tiflis Observatory. Oh, my God. Stalin as like a crazy cuckoo weatherman. Weatherman. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe if he had stuck with that, things would have been better. Would have been different for sure. Um, So Joseph attracted a group of supporters through his classes in socialist theory, and he co-organized a secret workers mass meeting for May Day in 1900, at which he successfully encouraged many of the men to take strike action. Mm. By this point, the empire's secret police were aware of his activities, and they attempted to arrest him in March 1901. But he escaped and went into hiding, living off the donations of friends and sympathizers. He remained underground and helped plan a demonstration for May Day 1901, in which 3,000 marchers clashed with authorities. He joined the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party and worked full-time for the revolutionary movement. In 1902, Joseph was arrested for coordinating a labor strike and exiled to Siberia, the first of his many arrests and exiles in the fledgling years of the Russian Revolution. It was during this time that he adopted the name Stalin, meaning steel, in Russia. Though he wasn't a strong speaker like Vladimir Lenin or an intellectual like Leon Trotsky, he excelled in the mundane operations of the revolution, calling meetings, publishing leaflets, and organizing strikes and demonstrations. So quick refresher, uh, when I'm talking about Lenin, that's um, the fellow who was born Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov in 1870. Um, He first adopted the pseudonym Lenin in December 1901, possibly based on the Siberian River Lena, but he often used the fuller pseudonym of N. Lenin. He served as head of government of the Soviet Russia from 1917 to 1924 and of the Soviet Union from 1922 to 24. Under his administration, Russia and the then wider Soviet Union became a one-party communist state governed by the Russian Communist Party. He was ideologically a communist, but he developed a variant of Marxism that was known as Leninism. Mm. Karl Marx was alive 1818 to 1883. He was a German philosopher and economist. Best known titles are the 1848 pamphlet, The Communist Manifesto, and then the three-volume Das Kapital. So Marxism is a method of socioeconomic analysis that views class relations and social conflict using a materialist interpretation of historical development. So what the hell does that mean? Yeah. Um, So this methodology analyzes and critiques the development of class society and especially that of capitalism. According to Marxist theory in capitalist societies, class conflict arises due to contradictions between the material interests of the oppressed and um, exploited proletariat, who's the class of wage laborers employed to produce goods and services, and the bourgeoisie, the ruling class that owns the means of production and extracts its wealth through appropriation of the surplus product produced by the proletariat. Yes. So that's Marxism. Communism is inspired by the Marxist school of thought. So their ultimate goal is the establishment of a communist society, which to them is a socioeconomic order structured upon the ideas of common ownership of the means of production and the absence of social classes, money, and the state. 
Okay. So communism kind of flattens the Marxist thing a little bit and makes it like, you know, it would be great if we just got rid of all social classes and everybody got the same amount of stuff. Yes. Yes. And that people weren't trying to steal things from the other people or benefit from the situation into which other people were born. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which on paper sounds sure great why not yes on paper yeah sure um one more guy uh trotsky who was born lev davidovich bronstein in 1879 around 1902 he adopted the pseudonym trotsky after the name of a jailer of the odessa prison in which he had earlier been held trotsky became a major figure in the bolshevik victory in the russian civil war and then a quick reminder of the bolsheviks and the mensheviks Mm. so those are the two prominent sectors within the famous russian social democratic party so bolsheviks believed in a radical and elitist revolution and mensheviks supported a more progressive change in collaboration with the middle class and the bourgeoisie so the um, bolsheviks were known as like the red party and the mensheviks were the white party so i didn't realize that all of these guys were all this is where all nicknames like i didn't yeah. realize none of them were born with those none names. of them had that yeah none of them had the name that we know them by so joseph stalin was basically like joe Steele, like joey Steele. <laughs> <laughs> yeah technically i think he wanted it to to mean man of steel so Superman is what you're telling well, me. Well, well, that's Superman. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not Superman gonna... didn't exist yet, but that's true. Yeah. You know. Joseph, <laughs> let's do this. <laughs> so back to him. In 1906, Joseph married Ekaterina Svenidze in Western Georgia, and she had their first son, Yakov, in March 1907. But later that year, in November 1907, his wife died of typhus, and he left his son with her family in Tiflis. After escaping from exile sh- shortly thereafter, he mm-hmm. was flagged by the Tsar's secret police called the Okranka as an outlaw, and he continued his work in hiding, raising money through robberies, kidnapping, and extortion. Oh, my God. Wow. He was associated with the 1907 Tiflis bank robbery, during which several people and horses were killed by bombs. Oh, my gosh. And about $250,000 rubles were stolen. That's about... About $3.4 million in the U.S. Holy money. Holy cow. So he became like radicalized very oh, quickly. Oh, yeah. Like within a matter of years. Yeah. Like he went from just like, we're passing out leaflets to like, yeah, we Every- need money for the Bolshevik movement. So everybody dies. We're just going to go get some of that yeah. money. Yep. So yeah, bombs early on. So. Um, while Joseph was in exile again, uh, the first Bolshevik Central Committee had been elected at the Prague Conference, where Lenin and a guy named Grigory Zionviev invited him to join. Lenin believed that Joseph, as a Georgian, would help secure support for the Bolsheviks from the empire's minority ethnicities. Oh, sure. And in February 1912, he again escaped to St. Petersburg, where he was tasked with converting the Bolsheviks' weekly newspaper, Zvezda, meaning star, into a daily paper called Pravda, meaning truth. So this new newspaper was launched in April 1912, although his role as editor was kept secret. In May 1912, he was arrested again and imprisoned before being sentenced to three years exile in Siberia. So he sneaked back in and out of St. Petersburg a bunch of times, though, and he kept editing the Pravda in secret. Mm. After the October 1912 elections, which um, had 
uh, some equality between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks being elected. He wrote articles calling for reconciliation between the two Marxist fashions, for which he was criticized by Lenin. In January 1913, he traveled to Vienna to focus on the national question of how the Bolsheviks should deal with the Russian Empire's national and ethnic minorities. So Lenin wanted to attract these groups to the Bolshevik cause by offering them the right of secession from the Russian state. But at the same time, he hoped that they would remain a part of a future Bolshevik gov- governed Russia. So it can't have it both ways. But yeah, exactly. Joseph's um, finished article at that point was called Marxism in the National Question, which he published under the pseudonym K. Stalin, a name that he had began using. Oh, so okay. it was derived from the Russian word stall, meaning steel, and um, has also been translated as man of steel. So Stalin may have intended this to imitate Lenin's pseudonym, um, but oh. Stalin retained this name for the rest of his life. And so from this point on, I will refer to him as Stalin. Okay, great. In February 1917, the Russian Revolution began. Oh, yeah. Um, By March, the Tsar abdicated the throne, was placed under house arrest, and for a time, the revolutionaries supported a provisional government, believing a smooth transition of power was possible. But in April 1917, the Bolshevik leader Lenin denounced the provisional government and argued that the people should rise up and take control by seizing land from the rich and factories from the industrialists. By October that year, the revolution was complete and the Bolsheviks were in control. You should remember to check out episode 27, The End of the Roman in which we get into those last days of the Romanovs. Very good. (laughs) So this is the October Revolution led by the Bolshevik Party with Lenin in charge. They seized Petrograd's electric power station, their main post office, the state bank, the phone exchange, and bridges. So um, there was a Bolshevik-controlled ship called the Aurora that opened fire on the Winter Palace. Yeah. That seems like an overkill. Uh I mean, no pun intended, but seriously. (laughs) Oh, my God. And um, the provisional government's assembled delegates surrendered and were arrested by the Bolsheviks. So although Stalin had been tasked with briefing the Bolshevik delegates of the Second Congress of Soviets about the developing situation, his role in the coup had not been publicly visible and was later criticized by his opponents as being insignificant in the revolution. In 1919, he married Nadezhda Alilueva, uh, the daughter of a Russian revolutionary. The couple had two children together, Vasily, born in 1921, and Svetlana, who was born in 1926. Um, By the way, Stalin also had at least two illegitimate children, although he never formally recognized them. And that's the worst thing he's ever done. The (laughs) end. The end. (laughs) (laughs) He was a deadbeat dad. Dictator December. (laughs) (laughs) So now we got to start to talk about him as a Communist Party leader. Okay. So this this early Soviet government went through a violent period after the revolution, since there were various individuals vying for positions and control. Sure. In 1922, Stalin was appointed to the newly created office of General Secretary of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. Though it wasn't a significant post at the time, it gave Stalin control over all party member appointments, which allowed him to build a base of people who supported him. A bunch of yes men. Yeah. Or ya men. Yep. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> On uh, December 28th, 1922, a conference of various socialist republic delegations approved the treaty on the creation of the USSR and the declaration of the creation of the USSR, officially forming the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. 
Stalin made shrewd appointments and consolidated his power so that eventually nearly all members of the Central Command owed their position to him. By the time anyone realized what he had done, it was basically too late. Um, Even Lenin, who had been forced into semi-retirement by a stroke, was helpless to regain control from Stalin. And after Lenin's death in 1924, Stalin set out to destroy the old party leadership and take total control. So at first, he had people removed from power through bureaucratic shuffling and denunciations. Many of the Bolsheviks were exiled abroad to Europe and the Americas, including Leon Trotsky, the man who had been presumed to succeed Lenin. Um, However, further paranoia set in and Stalin soon conducted a vast reign of terror, having people arrested in the night and put before spectacular show trials. Potential rivals were accused of aligning with capitalist nations, convicted of being enemies of the people, and summarily executed. And we'll get a little bit more into that in a bit. Um, Stalin also had the city of Tsaritsyn renamed to Stalingrad in April 1925 to officially recognize the city and Stalin's role in its defense against the Mensheviks after the revolution. Uh, Today, Stalingrad is called Volgograd. Oh, good to know. That's his current name. Um, But by the way, Leon Trotsky got like exiled to the Americas and then um, he definitely got murdered by somebody with an ice axe. Wow. Really? Yeah. That's a terrible way to go. Tough way to go. Yeah. I'm just picturing like in his garden, like reading. Oh, yeah. A little bit of a Godfather situation. Yeah. But. Instead of dying of a heart attack with an orange in his mouth, he gets <laughs> murdered with yes, a pickaxe. Much less peaceful than yeah. the Godfather. So um, we got to talk about reform and famine. In the late 1920s and early 1930s, Stalin reversed the Bolsheviks' agrarian policy by seizing land given earlier to the peasants and by organizing collective farms. This essentially reduced the peasant class back to serfs, as they had been during the monarchy. Oh, wow. In early 1928, Stalin traveled to Novosibirsk, where he alleged that the affluent peasants, or kulaks, were hoarding their grain, and he ordered that the kulaks be arrested and their grain confiscated, with Stalin bringing much of the area's grain back to Moscow with him. Uh, Stalin believed that collective would accelerate food production, but the peasants resented losing their land and working for the state. Sure. Millions were killed in forced labor or starved during this ensuing famine. Stalin also set in motion rapid industrialization that initially achieved huge successes, but over time cost millions of lives and vast damage to the environment. Officially, the Soviet Union had replaced the irrationality and wastefulness of a market economy with a planned economy organized along with a long-term and scientific framework. In reality, Soviet economics were based on ad hoc commandments issued from the center, often making short-term targets. So in 1928, the first five-year plan was launched with its main focus on boosting heavy industry. It was finished year ahead of schedule in 1932. So the USSR underwent a massive economic transformation. New mines were opened, new cities like Magnitogorsk were constructed, and work on the White Sea Baltic Canal had began. Millions of peasants moved to the cities, although urban house building couldn't keep up with the demand. So large debts were accrued also by the government by purchasing foreign main machinery. Many of the major construction projects were constructed largely through forced labor. The last elements of workers' control over industry were removed, with factory managers increasing their authority and receiving privileges and perks. Stalin defended wage disparity by pointing to Marx's argument that it was necessary during the lower stages of socialism. Any resistance was met with swift and lethal response. Millions of people were exiled to the labor camps of the Gulag or executed. So... This was corrupt from like day one. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's a utopian society is impossible to regardless, Mm -hmm. but there was just, it was bad from the get go. Yes. Yeah. Yikes. (sighs) 
1928, Stalin declared that a class war between the proletariat and their enemies would intensify as socialism developed. He warned of a danger from the right, including within the Communist Party itself. He held various show trials and aware that the ethnic Russian majority might have a problem with him as a Georgian, he promoted Russians within the state hierarchy and made Russian language mandatory in schools and workplaces. Conservative social policies were promoted to enhance social discipline and boost population growth. Uh, this included a focus on strong family units and motherhood, the recriminalization of homosexuality, restrictions placed on divorce and abortion, and the abolition of the Zenodal Women's Department of the Communist Party. So throughout the 1920s and beyond, Stalin placed a high priority on foreign policy, and he personally met with a range of Western visitors. Through the Communist International, his government exerted a strong influence over Marxist parties elsewhere in the world. In 1929, Stalin's son Yakov unsuccessfully attempted suicide, and his failure earned contempt from his father. Oh, my God. So. What? Yeah. Like, you're such a failure, you can't even kill yourself yourself right. right. Wow, what a dick. Yeah. Uh, also, he and his his second wife had been having issues for some time. And in 1932, after a group dinner at the Kremlin, uh, Stalin's wife, Nadia, shot and killed herself. Oh, my God. So, yeah. So publicly, they gave her cause of death as appendicitis. Uh, um, you mean her appendix burst because her she shot temple? herself? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, he also concealed her real cause of death from their children. What? That's so terrible. he apparently also at this point in time underwent a significant change after her suicide, becoming even more emotionally harder. The Soviet Union experienced a major famine, which peaked in the winter of 1932-1933. Between five and seven million people died. Oh my God. Uh, among the worst affected were those in Ukraine and the North Caucasus, although the famine also affected Kazakhstan and some Russian provinces, too. So the 1931 and 1932 harvests had been poor due to weather conditions, and he had followed several years in which lower productivity had resulted in a gradual decline in um, in ag- agricultural output. Mm-hmm. So government policies, including the focus on rapid industrialization, as well as an emphasis on, you know, building up the industry rather than actually farming, yeah. exacerbated the problem. So. The state had also failed to build reserve grain stocks for such an emergency. So Stalin blamed the famine on hostile elements and um, people who like messed this up for him within the peasantry. So his government provided small amounts of food to famine struck ruler areas, though this was wholly insufficient to deal with the levels of starvation. And in keeping with their ideology, the communists believed that food supplies should be prioritized for the urban workforce. You know, the guys who are working harder. Oh, my God. To build up our economy. Yeah. In the industry. They should get the food. So for Stalin, the fate of Soviet industrialization was far more important than the lives of the peasants. Oh, my gosh. So he just like took all their grain. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you need to work harder. Yes. And it's also, your fault. It's your fault that ever. It's your fault you're starving. Yep. If you were better at harvesting grain. Yeah. Then you'd be eating right now. But I guess you're not. <laughs> guess you don't care enough about being hungry. <laughs> yep. Wow. Wow. What a dick. <laughs> yes. So uh, since 2006, the 1932-1933 Great Famine has been recognized by Ukraine and 15 other countries as a genocide of the Ukrainian people carried out by the Soviet government. Wow. Yeah. Um, some scholars believe that the famine was actually planned by Joseph Stalin to eliminate a Ukrainian independence movement. Wow. That's even worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So this is why oh Ukraine God. like still hates Russia. <laughs> uh, understandable. Yep. Yeah. It goes yeah. back a ways. Yes. Jeez. 
So seeking improved international relations, in 1934, the Soviet Union secured membership to the League of Nations, from which it had previously been excluded. Stalin initiated confidential communications with Adolf Hitler in October 1933, shortly after he'd come to power in Germany. Stalin showed admiration for Hitler, particularly his maneuvers to remove rivals within the Nazi party during the Night of the Long Knives. Um, (sighs) That was a purge that took place in Nazi Germany from June 30th to July 2nd, 1934, during which Hitler ordered a series of political extrajudicial executions intended to consolidate his power and alleviate the concerns of the German military about the SA, his paramilitary group. So uh, it was like a three-day period in which he was like, oh, you guys, you do not like the stuff I'm doing. Bye. Bye. Oh my God. Um, so Stalin recognized the threat posed by fascism and he sought to establish better links with the liberal democracies of Western Europe. In May 1935, the Soviets signed a treaty of mutual assistance with France and Czechoslovakia. And at the Communist International Seventh Congress in 1935, the Soviet government encouraged Marxist-Leninists to unite with other leftists as part of a popular front against fascism. And in turn, the anti-communist governments of Germany, fascist Italy, and Japan signed the Anti-Cometerm Pact of 1936. When the Spanish Civil War broke out in July 1936, the Soviets sent aircraft and tanks to the left-wing Republican faction, and these were accompanied by Soviet troops and members of the international brigades set up by the Communist International. So Stalin took a strong personal involvement in the Spanish situation. Germany and Italy backed the Nationalist faction, which was ultimately victorious in March 1939. And with the outbreak of the Second Sino-Japanese War in July 1937, the Soviet Union and China signed a non-aggression pact the following August. So basically, Stalin's Soviet Union has been characterized as a totalitarian state with Stalin as its authoritarian leader. Mm-hmm. The Great Purge or the oh, Great no. Terror was a oh, campaign no. of political repression in the Soviet Union that took place from 1936 to 1938. It involved a large-scale purge of the Communist Party and government officials, repression of peasants, widespread police surveillance, imprisonment, and arbitrary executions. This happened for two years? Yeah. Oh, so, God. you know, he was inspired by oh, Hitler sure. yeah. and just had to make his longer and better, I guess. I guess. So Stalin wished to eliminate any threats to his power base, um, though it seems many of these threats were basically just he made just up. felt like yeah. he wanted to kill some people. So between those two years, 33% of the Communist Party's membership was purged. What? That's like a third of the people, <laughs> yes. literally. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Your math is impeccable I know. Tonight. I'm very good at it. So the killing and imprisonment started with members of the Bolshevik party, political officials, and military members. Then the purge expanded to include peasants, ethnic minorities, artists, scientists, intellectuals, writers, and ordinary citizens. Essentially, no one was safe from danger. Um, And the conditions of the Gulag labor camps were abysmal, and prisoners there commonly died of exhaustion, disease, or starvation. In the 1920s and 30s, more than 2,000 writers, intellectuals, and artists were imprisoned, and 1,500 died in the prisons and concentration camps. Oh, my God. So... You remember how like he used to work at the at the observatory and he, maybe he was going to be a weatherman? Yeah. No. Nope. Yes. So um, <laughs> he decided that um, some research into the development of sunspots was unmarxist. So what? 27 astronomers disappeared. What? The this research in sunspots was unmarxist. Unmarxist? Yep. This guy's a nut. Yeah. The meteorological office was violently purged as early as 1933 for failing p- to predict weather that was harmful to the crops. So wait, so wait, 
I'm starting to get, I'm starting to draw some conclusions here. So you know how a lot of people think that Hitler became Hitler and killed a bunch of people and was a terrible dictator because he couldn't get into art school. Maybe Stalin became who Stalin is. It was. He failed out a bunch of, of Weatherman Because Academy. he failed out of Weatherman Academy. And they were like, you just don't have it, man. You just don't do something You don't else. know what the warm front <laughs> symbol no. is. You don't know what a, what a, a cool, like the cold front coming in and how that makes rain. It's basic no. meteorology. No, he did Stalin. not. He did not understand this. No, because clearly he, not. Because he imprisoned these people because he thought that they couldn't predict the weather that was harmful to their crops. Oh uh, historians with archival access have confirmed that Stalin was intimately involved in this terror, and it's estimated that the total number of deaths due to Stalinist repression during the Great Purge is somewhere between 680,000 and 1,200,000. Oh, my God. So this That's is just so two years people. of him, like, just just off with their heads in the within the Communist Party. Oh my god! Um, sidebar related to this. So okay. um, I'm I, I like Reese Witherspoon's book club recommendations. Um, and earlier this year, wow, I, I cannot you wait you to hear what that. the connection is. Um, <laughs> she suggested a book called "The Secrets We Kept" by Laura Prescott. Um, it's a fictional retelling of the true story of the CIA plot to infiltrate Soviet Russia by publishing Boris Pasternak's book "Doctor Zhivago." Oh, so the story covers a few decades, including Pasternak's affair with his mistress Olga, who was sent to the Gulag by Stalin's people to punish Pasternak. And it gets into the friends of Pasternak who were imprisoned by Stalin for their anti-communist and un-Marxist views. So it was a really interesting book. I'd recommend it. Okay, cool. Yeah. That sounds good. I've heard that about Dr. Zhivago. Yeah. That it was like, it was a it was a surreptitious plot. Oh my gosh. It, be, it was, yeah, the book gets into it for sure. Um, yeah. But basically like everybody knew that Pasternak had this manuscript and mm. no one was ever going to let him publish it. And then like people heard about it and the CIA was like, well, what if we published it? And then people would learn more about what's going on in Russia. Mm -hmm. So they had some um, CIA agent got with a guy in Italy and then they oh like gosh. took a train over and then they like, you know, they gathered it from him and they, you know, took it, bundled it back on a train, like smuggled it out of the country. Wow, that's amazing. And then amazing. like printed it in Italian and then they printed it in in America in English and then we're trying to like, like people would, uh, then they translated it into like Russian, obviously. Yeah, and, and then so like, to get it back in. They would have people like take a train to Moscow and like take a book and like just like drop it <gasps> in somebody's suitcase or they had like a big like type of world's fair type situation mm -hmm. and they um had like a church and they had somebody dressed up as a priest and someone dressed up as a nun and as people would come in to like get confession they would give them like the little book get so they could read it out. yeah it was like a it that's a, amazing yeah. oh yeah i can't wait it was yeah. cool it was that's cool. really cool and stalin does does um occur in that book as well mm. so Anyway, at this point, I would like to remind you that Stalin was a full five foot four inches tall. Mm. Um, mm. To appear taller, he wore stacked shoes and stood on a small platform during parades. Um, his face was pockmarked from having smallpox in childhood, and he also had a webbed left foot. <gasps> Ew. Yeah. He also <laughs> favored military style clothing, in particular long black boots, light colored collarless tunics, and a gun. Um, he was a lifelong smoker who smoked both a pipe and cigarettes and he cared about power not wealth um, as I mentioned before he had like a really messed up arm from being in a carriage accident when he was younger and he disliked travel and refused to travel by airplane okay all right just just keeping this just in mind personal info about 
our boy Stalin yeah. here. So for the next part, I got some great information from the book 100 Events That Shaped World War II by Peter Darman um, for this next part of Stalin's Ooh. story. So here we are. World War II. That was me cracking my knuckles. <laughs> Um, So after Nazi Germany annexed Austria and then part of Czechoslovakia in 1938, Stalin recognized a war was looming. Um, In August 1939, Stalin and Hitler signed the Nazi-Soviet Non-Aggression Pact. And the terms of the treaty made public stated that the two countries agreed not to attack each other, not to support any third power that might attack the other, uh, to remain in consultation with each other about their interests, Mm -hmm. not to join any group of powers that would threaten the other, and to solve differences by arbitration or negotiation. And this was supposed to last for 10 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Three megalomaniacs are supposed to like consult each other about the decisions being made in their countries when they want to take over the world. Great (laughs) idea. So by signing this, Stalin sought to maintain Soviet neutrality, hoping that a German war against France and Britain would lead to then Soviet dominance in Mm -hmm. Europe. So Hitler and Stalin decided together that they would divide up Eastern Europe between their two powers. Uh, Germany invaded Poland in 1939. The Soviets took over Lithuania. And um, following the pact, Stalin ordered the suspension of espionage activity in Nazi Germany. The Soviets further demanded parts of Finland, but the Finnish government refused, and the Soviets invaded Finland in November 1939, um, but the Finns kept the Red Army at bay. International opinion backed Finland, and the Soviets were expelled from the League of Nations. Like, come on, guys. You can't just walk into Finland and say that it's ours now. You know, so you're not allowed in our club anymore. So embarrassed by their inability to defeat the Finns, the Soviets signed an interim peace treaty with them in June 1940, and the Red Army occupied the Baltic states, which were forcibly merged into the Soviet Union that August. They also invaded and annexed parts of Romania. Mm. The Soviets sought to forestall dissent in these new Eastern European territories with mass repressions, including the Katyn Massacre of April and May 1940, in which around 22,000 members of the Polish Armed Forces, Police, and Intelligentsia were executed. So the speed of the German victory over an occupation of France in mid-1940 took Stalin by surprise. Um, He increasingly focused on appeasement with the Germans to delay any conflict with them. And after the Tripartite Pact, also known as the Berlin Pact, was signed by the Axis powers Germany, Japan, and Italy in October 1940, Stalin proposed that the USSR should also join the Axis alliance. Mm -hmm. So Stalin trusted Hitler. Okay, and he mistake number one, and he ignored warnings from his military commanders that Germany was mobilizing armies on its eastern front. So when the Nazi Blitzkrieg struck the eastern front during their Operation Barbarossa in June 1941, Mm -hmm. the Soviet army was completely unprepared and immediately suffered massive losses. So Blitzkrieg is lightning war. That's the method of warfare where the attacking force is led by a dense concentration of armored or mechanized infantry formations. They also have air support, um, and then they. They basically uh, totally disarm the opponents by short, Mm -hmm. fast, powerful attacks. So Stalin, taken totally by surprise. um, And he was so distraught at Hitler's treachery that he hid in his office for several days. What a baby. So can I tell you something? Can I tell you something? (laughs) This is this is not this is not um, this is not like a blanket statement especially for the men who listen to this podcast. We love you especially. But the longer I live on this earth, I realize that men are children. And that it's and that sometimes they didn't get hugged enough yep. or they didn't they they had bad relationships with their daddies and because of that all of the country is like murdered. <laughs> like like men are babies. Yes. So his his 
his friend, Hitler, totally betrayed him. And so he pouted in his office. And then and then he came up with his plan. Oh, boy. So by the time he gained his resolve, the German armies had occupied all of Ukraine and Belarus and their artillery surrounded Leningrad. So Stalin formed a state defense committee, which he headed as the Supreme Commander, as well as a military Supreme Command called the Stavka, with a man named Georgi Zhukov as his chief of staff. So the German tactic of Blitzkrieg was initially highly effective. Um, The Soviet Air Force in the Western borderlands was destroyed within two days. Uh, To make matters worse, the purges of the 1930s had depleted the Soviet army and government leadership to the point where both were nearly dysfunctional. There was a lack of radios, for example, and ammunition mm-hmm. and training and actual oh combat ready devices. So the German Wehrmacht, their defense force, pushed deep into Soviet territory and soon uh, Ukraine, Belarusia and the Baltic states um, were all under German occupation and Leningrad was under siege. So Soviet refugees were flooding into Moscow and the surrounding cities and by July Germany's Luftwaffe, their air force, um, was bombing Moscow and back to October, the Wehrmacht was amassing for a full assault on the capital. Plans were being made for the Soviet government to to evacuate to Kubishev, although Stalin decided to remain in Moscow, believing his flight would damage troop morale. And against the advice of his generals, Stalin emphasized attack over defense. So June 1941, Stalin ordered a scorched earth policy of destroying the infrastructure and food supplies of his own country before the Germans could seize them. He also, what? Yeah. This, this is a strategy? Yep. You can't have it. We destroyed it already. All my people are dying. Ha ha. That's on you. He also commanded the interior ministry to kill around 100,000 political prisoners in areas that the Wehrmacht approached. He purged the military command. Several high-ranking figures were demoted or reassigned, and others were arrested and executed. Stalin commanded soldiers risking capture to fight to the death, describing the captured as traitors. Among those taken as a prisoner of war by the Germans was Stalin's son, Yakov, who died in their custody. Get out. He committed suicide after being captured by the Germans, but Yakov. R.I.P. Um, Stalin issued order number 227 in July 1942, which directed that those retreating unauthorized would be placed in penal battalions and used as cannon fodder on the front lines. <gasps> Amid the fighting, both the German and Soviet armies totally disregarded the laws of war set forth in the Geneva Conventions, of course. which are the standards for humanitarian treatment in war. The Soviets heavily publicized Nazi massacres of communists, Jews, and Romani, and Stalin exploited Nazi anti-Semitism. And in April 1942, he sponsored the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee to garner Jewish and foreign support for the Soviet war effort. The Soviets then allied themselves with the United Kingdom and the United States. Oh, sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks. The, though since the U.S. joined the war against Germany in 1941, there was little direct American assistance that could actually reach the Soviets until later yeah. in 1942. And responding to the invasion, the Soviets intensified their industrial enterprises in central Russia, focusing almost entirely on military production. In June 1942, the German army began their major offensive in southern Russia, threatening Stalingrad. Stalin ordered the Red Army to hold the city at all costs. And this is the infamous Battle of Stalingrad. Mm -hmm. This is the largest confrontation of World War II in which Germany and its allies fought the Soviet Union for control of this important city in southern Russia. To this day, the Battle of Stalingrad remains the largest and bloodiest battle in the history of warfare. Nearly 2.2 million people were involved in this battle and 1.8 to 2 million were killed, wounded, or captured. That's what? 
That's so many people. It's oh my God. So many people. This battle lasted for five months, one week, and three days. What? This, what? <laughs> one what? battle. One battle. 2.2 million people. The largest and bloodiest battle in the history of oh warfare. Oh my God. And this is called the Battle of Stalingrad? The Battle, the battle of Stalingrad. Okay. So in February 1943, the German troops attacking Stalingrad finally surrendered. The Soviet victory there marked a major turning point in the war. And in commemoration, Stalin declared himself Marshal of the Soviet Union. You sure, know. whatever. Get another title, man. Um, in recognition of the determination of its defenders, Stalingrad was awarded the title Hero City in 1945. Mm-hmm. And a colossal monument called the Motherland Calls was erected in 1967. That's the center of the monument ensemble, Heroes of the Battle of Stalingrad. Uh, the Motherland Calls is um, a statue that's 279 feet tall. It's oh. the tallest statue in Europe and the tallest one of a woman in the world. Oh, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. I do know that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's because of Stalingrad. That's, where, wow. that, that's okay. where that statue is and why that's there. So remember how I mentioned that like all their, they didn't have any radios and all their planes were destroyed and they, they didn't have anything. They yeah. just lost 2.2 million people, you know. So um, around the same time, we have that all-female squadron of bomber pilots oh, who yes. the Germans called the Night Witches who mm-hmm. were impacting the war effort. And you can learn more about that in episode 113, Badass Russian Women and the Men Who Feared Them, A Vengeance Tale in Three Parts with Kat Thompson and Jill Martinuk. It was um, very good. So that's why they didn't have uniforms or planes or radios because they... <laughs> Like their their whole country had been just decimated. Yeah. Yeah. Over That's the past crazy. two decades. By their own leader yeah. for the most part. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. So by the end of 1943, the Soviets occupied half of the territory taken by the Germans um, in the previous years. So in allied countries, Stalin was increasingly depicted in a positive light over the course of war. In 1941, the London Philharmonic Orchestra performed a concert to celebrate his birthday. And in 1942, Time magazine named him Man of the Year for the second time. He also got that title in 1939. Clearly, they had not the the news had not reached Time Magazine. So, so the the London Philharmonic, sure, bad decision. <laughs> but I have read that Man of the Year or Person of the Year, as uh-huh. it's known now, yes, isn't necessarily like a like a good thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's like Man of the Year, Person of the Year is just like this is the person who has made the most impact on the world for better or for worse yeah. this year, kind of thing. But Man of the Year, the phrase. Sounds like, what a great guy. Yeah. You're man of the year, yep. you know? Man of the year. Two times. Two-time man of the year. Um, so when Stalin learned that people in Western countries were calling him Uncle Joe, like as his nickname, oh, he boy. was initially offended regarding it as undignified. Mm. So um, between the main the main leaders here in the Allied forces. So there were mutual suspicions between Stalin, Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, sure. who were together known as the Big Three. Um, Churchill flew to Moscow to visit Stalin in August 1942 and again in October 1944. Stalin scarcely left Moscow throughout the war because he wouldn't travel. He yeah, wouldn't, exactly. He didn't like flying. So Roosevelt and Churchill were kind of frustrated with his reluctance to travel to meet them. They were like, why do we have to come to meet you? We have other things to do. Man, your country is cold. We got a lot going on. (laughs) So Stalin had been suspicious of the West since the Soviet Union began. Um, And once the Soviet Union entered the war, Stalin had demanded that the Allies open up a second front against Germany. Both British Prime Minister Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt argued that such an action would result in heavy casualties. And this only deepened Stalin's suspicion of the West while millions of Russians were dying. Mm -hmm. 
As the tide of war slowly turned in the Allies' favor, Roosevelt and Churchill met with Stalin to discuss post-war arrangements. And at the first of these meetings, at the Tehran Conference in Iran in late 1943, the recent victory in Stalin got put Stalin in a solid bargaining position. And he demanded the Allies open a second front against Germany, which they finally agreed to in spring 1944. In February 1945, the three leaders met again at the Yalta Conference in the Crimean Peninsula of the Soviet Union. With Soviet troops liberating countries in Eastern Europe, Stalin was again in a strong position and negotiated virtually a free hand in reorganizing their governments. Roosevelt and Churchill conceded to Stalin's demand that Germany pay the Soviet Union $20 billion in reparations (laughs) and that his country be permitted to annex islands between Russia and Japan in exchange for entering the war against Japan. Mm. The Red Army withheld assistance to Polish resistance fighters battling the Germans in the Warsaw Uprising, with Stalin believing that any victorious Polish militants could interfere with his aspirations to dominate Poland through future Marxist government. I guess so, yeah. So although concealing his desires from the other Allied leaders, Stalin placed great emphasis on capturing Berlin first, believing that this would enable him to bring more of Europe under long-term Soviet control. Churchill was concerned that this was the case and unsuccessfully tried to convince the U.S. that Western allies should pursue the same goal. In April 1945, the Red Army seized Berlin. Hitler committed suicide, mm-hmm. and Germany surrendered in May. Stalin wanted Hitler captured alive because, yeah, he, you know, he was, he, wanted to, he was so upset. At he him. wanted to put his finger in his face and be like, why did you do that yeah, to me? Yeah, why did you do that to me, man? Um, so Stalin had Hitler's remains brought to Moscow to what? prevent them from becoming a relic for Nazi sympathizers. Oh, sure, yeah. And to test them to ensure that they were really Hitler. Oh, yeah. So that was like a big conspiracy for decades. Oh, sure. I, I'm that, sure of that, yeah. That Hitler was still alive and well and hiding in Argentina. So as the Red Army had conquered German territory, they discovered the extermination camps that the Nazi administration had been running. Many Soviet soldiers engaged in looting, pillaging, and rape, both in Germany and parts of Eastern Europe. Stalin refused to punish the offenders. Great. From his own army. Great. Good. With Germany defeated, Stalin focused... um, Instead, on the war with Japan, transferring half a million troops to the Far East. Stalin was pressed by his allies to enter the war and wanted to cement the Soviet Union's strategic positioning in Asia. That situation changed at the Potsdam Conference in July 1945. So FDR had died in April that year, was replaced by President Harry S. Truman. My boy. Your boy. Um, British parliamentary elections had replaced Prime Minister Churchill with Clement Attlee as Britain's chief negotiator. Mm -hmm. And by now, the British and Americans were suspicious of Stalin's intentions and wanted to avoid Soviet involvement in a post-war Japan. So Stalin, Churchill, and Truman decided to gather to how to administer Germany, which had agreed to unconditional surrender nine weeks earlier on May 8th, which was Victory in Europe Day. So the goals of the conference also included the establishment of post-war order, peace treaty issues, and countering the effects of the war. On August 8th, 1945, in between the U.S. atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Soviet army invaded Japanese-occupied Manchuria. And at the conference, Stalin had repeated previous promises to Churchill that he would refrain from a Sovietization of Eastern Europe. Stalin pushed for reparations from Germany without any regard to the base minimum supply for a German citizen survival, which worried Truman and Churchill, who thought that Germany would basically become like a financial burden then for the Western powers yeah. because they were like, mm, we should they sit at the ladies and the citizens didn't do all the bad stuff. We should still make sure we keep them alive. Yeah, you exactly. Know? Let them starve to death in their uh, opposite, opposite 
of Stalin. Yeah. Um, Stalin also pushed for war booty, which would permit the Soviet Union to directly seize property from conquered nations without any limitation. Oh my God. And he added, they added a clause permitting this to occur with some limitations. So Germany was divided into four zones. That's where we have the Soviet, the US, British, and French, Mm -hmm. with Berlin itself located within the Soviet area, also subdivided. So we covered this in episode 62, Tear Down This Wall, Mm -hmm. all about the Berlin Wall. Convinced of the Allies' hostilities toward the Soviet Union, Stalin became obsessed with the threat of an invasion from the West. Mm. And between 1945 and 48, he established communist regimes in many Eastern European countries, creating a vast buffer zone between Western Europe and Mother Russia. He ensured that returning Soviet prisoners of war went through filtration camps as they arrived in the Soviet Union, during which 2.7 million were interrogated to determine if they were traitors. And then about half were imprisoned in labor camps. Oh, my gosh. He's paranoid. Like a super paranoid person. Yeah. Yep. So within the Soviet Union, he was widely regarded as the embodiment of victory and patriotism. His armies controlled Central and Eastern Europe up to the River Elbe. In June 1945, Stalin adopted the title of Generalissimus, and he stood atop Lenin's mausoleum to watch a celebratory parade led through the Red Square. At a banquet held for army commanders, he described the Russian people as the outstanding nation and a leading force within the Soviet Union, the first time that he had endorsed the Russians over any other Soviet nationality. Mm-hmm. And in 1946, the state published Stalin's collected works. In 1947, it brought out a second edition of his official biography, which eulogized him to a greater extent than its predecessor. He was quoted in Pravda on a daily basis, and pictures of him remained pervasive on the walls of workplaces and homes. Western powers interpreted these actions as proof of Stalin's desire to place Europe under communist control, and they formed the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, to counter Soviet influence. In the aftermath of World War II, the British Empire declined, leaving the U.S. and basically the USSR as the dominant world powers. Tensions among these former allies grew, resulting in the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And we cover a lot of that in episode 68, Joe McCarthy and the Second Red Scare. It's very good. Thanks. You're welcome. So it's 1948. Stalin ordered an economic blockade of the German city of Berlin in hopes of gaining full control of the city. So the Allies responded with massive Berlin airlift, supplying the city and eventually forcing Stalin to back down. He suffered another foreign policy defeat after encouraging North Korean communist leader Kim Il-sung to invade South Korea, believing that the U.S. wouldn't interfere in that. Earlier, he'd ordered the Soviet representative to the U.N. to boycott the Security Council because it refused to accept the newly formed Communist People's Republic of China into the United Nations. And when that resolution to support South Korea came to a vote in the Security Council, the Soviet Union was not able to use its veto. So it's like, so people are like, okay, we got to figure out. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on over there. Mm -hmm. What can we do to kind of mitigate this? Yeah. All right. Let's talk about let's talk about Stalin's death. Oh, shall we? Great. Let's do it. So from 1946 until his death, uh, Stalin only gave three public speeches, two of which lasted only a few minutes. The amount of written material that he produced also declined. Uh, Though his popularity from his successes during World War II was strong, his health began to deteriorate in the early 1950s. He didn't trust his doctors. In Mm. January 1952, he had at least one imprisoned after he suggested that Stalin should retire to improve his health. And after an assassination plot was uncovered, he ordered the head of the secret police to instigate a new purge of the Communist Party. Oh, my God. Okay. So one of his most loyal henchmen was named Lavrenti Berea. The implication of Stalin's recent tirades was that Berea and his other close officers would be next on the to-do list, a.k.a. 
killing them off. Sure, yeah. Uh, so he had like a big giant dinner party and okay. there was always this stuff in Stalin's house that like you couldn't leave until he told you you could leave. Oh, you okay. couldn't like get up from the table until he told you you get up from the table. Yeah. So around 4 a.m. on March 1st, 1953, he Ooh. finally let the guests at that party leave. You, you set a time. Yeah. You know what you that know means. It. So he was never supposed to be alone in his DACA and um, three guards were there that night. But one of the guards named Krustalev told the other officers that Stalin told them all they could go home and go to bed okay they were like well i guess we're tired i would like to go home yeah okay all right well if you say so so the next morning stalin didn't come out of his room and his guards had been given express orders to never enter his room so they were like waiting and waiting and waiting they're like maybe he's just sleeping it off (laughs) so later in the evening an important package arrived and they were like okay well we got to get him this package so one of the guards opened the door and stalin's staff found him semi-conscious on the bedroom floor after he suffered what appeared to be a cerebral hemorrhage so they picked him up and they put him on a couch and he was on the couch for three days he was hand-fed using a spoon giving various medicines and injections and they applied leeches to him you know all the best stuff his remaining adult children Vasily and Svetlana were called to his side and his daughter said that it was quote a difficult and terrible death the formal cause of death was a cerebral hemorrhage but also severe damage to his cerebral arteries due to atherosclerosis which is a plaque buildup in the arteries witnesses said he was also vomiting blood which modern analysis suggests would not have been caused by a cerebral hemorrhage According to historian Giles Milton, it is now believed that Laventry Berea dosed Stalin's wine with warfarin, which is a blood thinner, because he was fearful of being next on Stalin's hit list. And he later told the Soviet inner circle that they should thank him. So while he may have died of a formerly of a cerebral hemorrhage, somebody probably did dose. Yeah, caused that to happen, which would cause all kinds of other. Well, you know what? It couldn't happen to a nicer guy. (laughs) (laughs) So. Stalin's death was announced on March 6, 1953. The body was embalmed and then placed on display in Moscow's House of Unions for three days. Crowds were so big to see this body that reportedly around 100 people were crushed to death while trying to view his body. What? Still still killing people after he's dead. Even after he died. Mm -hmm. My God. So this funeral involved the body being laid to rest in Lenin's mausoleum in Red Square three days later, and hundreds of thousands of people attended. Uh, That month featured a surge in arrests for anti-Soviet agitation as Mm -hmm. those celebrating Stalin's death came to police attention. sure. He left no anointed successor nor a framework within a transfer of power could take place, probably because he thought he would live forever. Yeah, exactly. Uh, The Central Committee met on the day of his death and the system of collective leadership was restored with measures introduced to prevent any one member attaining autocratic domination again. Oh, wow. Reforms to the Soviet system were immediately implemented. Economic reforms scaled back the mass construction projects, placed a new emphasis on house building, and eased the levels of taxation on the peasants to stimulate production. The new leaders sought... um, a treaty with Yugoslavia and a less hostile relationship with the U.S., pursuing a negotiated end to the Korean War in July 1953. Mm-hmm. And the doctors who had been imprisoned by him were released and anti-Semitic purges stopped happening. Oh, great. A mass amnesty for those imprisoned for non-political crimes was issued. Basically taking the the country's inmate population and cutting it in half. Oh, wow. Uh, while the state security and gulag systems were reformed and torture was finally banned oh, in April 1953. Oh, thank God. What? After like... Many 60 years. 60 years of Finally, that? torture, banned. Yeah. 
So Stalin left a legacy of death and horror, even as he turned a backward Russia into a world superpower. He was eventually denounced by his successor, Nikita Khrushchev, in 1956. After Stalin's death, his daughter Svetlana changed her last name and defected to the United States. Wow. For most Westerners and any communist Russians, he's viewed overwhelmingly negatively as a mass murderer. Sure. Uh, And for significant numbers of Russians and Georgians, he is regarded as a great statesman. Oh, wow. Really? It is estimated that Stalin killed somewhere between one and nine million people directly or indirectly through famine, forced labor camps, collectivization and executions. Uh, Some scholars have argued that Stalin's records of killings amount to genocide and make him one of history's most ruthless mass murderers. Oh, my God. So for additional reading, you might want to check out Roman Brackman's The Secret File of Joseph Stalin, A Hidden Life or Miklos Kun's Stalin, An Unknown Portrait. In case you want to learn in ca- more in case you're about like, this, mm. about this fella, this mustachioed fella. Man, that was rough. That's a rough start. No, and I feel December. like I had like, like he was involved in so many like yeah. important world events mm-hmm. that I know I had to, I had to touch upon a lot of them. Oh, yeah. So I hope you enjoyed your refresher in world history. But by the way, I feel like I feel like Please. in my world history classes in high school, all we ever heard was like like Yep, Stalin was in charge of the Soviet yep. Union during World War Two. Definitely and that's did not like hear about all of this. End of end of statement. Yeah, he was bad because communism is bad. The end. Not even nobody told me how bad he was that early on in my life. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. He was bad. Wow. Yeah, he was real bad. He was so bad. (laughs) (laughs) He was such a very bad human. He was an extremely bad person. And that is a ringing... Chapter one. Chapter one of... Hope you enjoyed it, everyone. So, on a much lighter note... Great. Our quiz is on... Is called no. It's on. It's called I don't know. Oh, whatever. This you is want. a quiz about universally adored humans. Question one: It is December after all, so time to put on some of your favorite holiday specials. Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas was a 1977 special produced by which beloved puppeteer? Question two: Denzel Washington is an actor, director, and People Magazine's first man of color to be named the sexiest man alive. He's won two Academy Awards, one in 1989, the other in 2001. Name either of the films for which he received an Oscar. Question three. This boldly dressed entertainer and noted plastic surgery enthusiast has composed more than 3,000 songs, including a farewell song that topped the charts in both 1974 and 1992. Who is this well-known philanthropist, singer, and of course, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee tourism advocate? Question four. A 2011 Reuters poll revealed that this multiple Emmy award-winning actress and pioneer of television was the, quote, most popular and most trusted celebrity among Americans. Which 97-year-old actress can you always thank for being a friend? Question five. But you don't have to take my word for it. This actor starred as the young Kunta Kinte in the 1977 TV miniseries Roots before becoming the host of a long-running PBS children's program. Name this actor who also helmed a starship, despite his character having impaired sight. Question six. Fred Rogers passed away in 2003, but we're in the middle of a resurgence of nostalgia around his career and for the mick feelings he 
inspired across several generations. Name both of the major movies released in recent years with him as the focus, a documentary in 2018 and a 2019 film based on an Esquire article. Question seven. The crocodile hunter Steve Irwin owned and operated a zoological park in Queensland. All of the proceeds from the Irwin's television shows went toward animal conservation and building new exhibits. What is the name of this attraction located at 1638 Steve Irwin Way, Birwa, Queensland? Question 8. Oprah Winfrey ran her eponymous daytime talk show for 25 years, with viewers looking to her for recommendations on what to buy, try, and of course, read. In September 2005, she selected the memoir A Million Little Pieces for her book club. But after it came to light that the book was a total fabrication, Oprah had what author accused of literary forgery back on her show to explain himself? Question 9. If there's one white guy in Hollywood loved by everyone, it's Tom Hanks. Or as Esquire calls him, America's dad. I'll name you four of his films and you tell me the real life person he portrayed in that movie. First, Apollo 13. Second, Saving Mr. Banks. Third, The Post. And fourth, Charlie Wilson's War. And finally, question 10. Carried by 95% of all public television stations in the U.S., The Joy of Painting was a hit series from 1983 to 1994, starring what happy little tree lover who did the show for free? I'll give you about a minute to think, and then we'll be back with your answers. My heart has grown three sizes this day. I was like, oh, I, I love these people. They're just so sweet and lovely. Yeah, it's like you, you don't remember anything yeah. we just talked about in the last hour. Exactly. All right, lay it on me. I'm feeling good about right. this. Yeah. Question one. It is December after all, so time to put on some of your favorite holiday specials. Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas was a 1977 special produced by which beloved puppeteer? Uh, that would be Jim Henson. It is absolutely Jim Henson. And we have an entire episode dedicated to Jim Henson in case you missed it. That's episode 34, The Original Muppet Man. It's very good. I was able to plug so many things this up. <laughs> I will tell you that I also plug a lot of episodes awesome. in mine. Yeah. So Because once you've been talking for three yeah, years at this things point. Things are going to overlap. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Question two. Denzel Washington is an actor, director, and People Magazine's first man of color to be named the sexiest man alive. He's won two Academy Awards, one in 1989, the other in 2001. Name either of the films for which he received an Oscar. Okay. 
I, I know one, and I'm going to guess on the second okay. one. I know I only have to say one. Yeah. Is one of them Glory? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's Glory. And then the second one, was that Training Day? Yes. Okay. Got them both. Yes. So Glory was 1989. Um, he played Private Silas Tip, and he received the Best Supporting Actor Oscar. And in Training Day in 2001, he played Detective Alonzo Harris, for which he received the Best ask, Best. Aster. Aster. The best Aster. He's got a great Aster. <laughs> hey yo. No, hey yo. Best actor Aster. Oscar. Um, he also starred in Saint Elsewhere and from 1982 to 1988, and he has received much critical acclaim for his film work since the 1980s, including his portrayals of real life figures. Yes. Um, and he has come on. He has become a really great director. Yeah. And he's been um, he's been nominated for all kinds of awards for being a director too. So this man is. Married to, the same, married to the same woman for like 35 Ugh. years. He's got a handsome son who's also, I think, a, a writer and an actor. Yeah, that sounds right. He's still, he could still get it from LT. <laughs> he, he is <laughs> still very handsome. <laughs> he should he should probably add that to his Wikipedia page. Yeah. His Just list at, the, of achievements. at the end. Personal could life. Could still get it. Could still get it. <laughs> Question three. This boldly dressed entertainer and noted plastic surgery enthusiast has composed more than 3,000 songs, including a farewell song that topped the charts in both 1972 and 1992. In both 1974 and 1992. Who is this well-known philanthropist, singer, and of course, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee tourism advocate? Why, that's Miss Dolly Parton. Of course it is. Uh, One of my favorite facts about her is that she entered a Dolly Parton look-like drag contest on Halloween one year and she lost. I love that. My uh, my gynecologist's name is Jolene. And I get that song just stuck in it. my head yep. every time I go and get a checkup. <laughs> um, she also founded the Dolly Parton Imagination Library, which promotes literacy by sending free books to children from birth through age five in the US, UK, Canada, Australia, <laughs> and Ireland. Um, also... Dolly the sheep, the yeah. clone sheep, was named after her. Oh, I didn't know Because that. the sheep was derived from a mammary gland cell, and the scientists said that they couldn't think of, quote, a more impressive pair of glands than those of Dolly Parton. Wow. Okay. So while that's both sexist, I still think it's kind of funny. No, it's <laughs> And you know what? I bet she loved that. I bet, I bet she, she loved it, she too. She was truly honored. Yeah. Also, Netflix now, I don't know if you've seen this, has like, Dolly Parton is now going through all of her songs and she like presents a song and then somehow there's like like there's actors that like portray the story of the song kind of like a hallmark movie Uh kind of quality and she always plays like a part in the little like like vignette about the song and it looks so corny but i am going to sit down and watch all of it forever oh she's also been married to the same man for 50 years and like (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she's just she just has so much love and she's, she's such so a lovely kind. person and, and so witty and self-deprecating uh, and just a lovely kind person yeah bless her bless dolly parton yeah. i think there's a there's a podcast series out now called dolly parton's america which is like a nine episode thing that takes a look at her life too i oh haven't had a chance to check it out yet but we i should but do I an episode pretty good. dolly parton well i feel like the podcast dolly parton's america oh yeah i guess the nine the episode one you just mentioned <laughs> a nine episode show about dolly parton probably I does guess. a lot of the heavy hitting i know but, but i mean we could take a, sure <laughs> selfishly i just want to talk about dolly parton for an hour <laughs> and have like an excuse to do it but i think you're oh, right probably if we did it like on christmas we could call it getting jolly about dolly oh. next year guys 
<laughs> Next year, it won't be, it, December will be a nicer month, <laughs> just in general. Question four. A 2011 Reuters poll revealed that this multiple Emmy award-winning actress and pioneer of television was the most popular and most trusted celebrity among Americans. Which 97-year-old actress can you always thank for being a friend? Another person who should live forever, and that is Miss Betty White. Yes. We have to keep her safe. Uh, please keep her safe. Um, in August 2018, White's career was celebrated in a PBS documentary called Betty White, First Lady of Television. Oh. The documentary was filmed over a period of 10 years, featuring archive footage and interviews from colleagues and friends. Um, she's also an animal rights advocate on top of everything else in her busy schedule. Um, she's, she, I think she's won um, eight Emmys across like 60 years. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Yeah. She's the most precious thing. Oh, my God. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Question five. But you don't have to take my word for it. This actor starred as the young Kunta Kinte in the 1977 TV miniseries Roots before becoming the host of a long-running PBS children's program. Name this actor who also helmed a starship despite his character having impaired sight. That's LeVar Burton. It is LeVar Burton. My favorite LeVar is when he appeared as himself on Community. Yes, I was going to mention that. So when Troy got to finally meet him, because he's like his one hero, one true hero, he was struck completely speechless. And then at the end credits, they show Troy like singing the Reading Rainbow theme song alone in a bathroom before yes. breaking out in tears. Ah, oh, it's, it's so good. It's unexpected, you know? It's yeah. Like- it's- <laughs> um, I Reading Rainbow was like, like my number two favorite show when I was little. After number one. What? Sesame Street. Okay. Sure. Um, and I was obsessed with LeVar Burton. I loved him deeply like he was an uncle. I loved him. I really wanted to know how to get on that show. That was what always like. <laughs> like, how do I get to how say do it? But I you get to have, tell people about it. You don't have to take my word for it. <laughs> but um bum. Yeah. There were all like, these little attractive child actors that got to talk about their favorite were they books. child actors yeah they were child actors too oh i'm sure they God, were that's really disappointing <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry but that, just just think that you know it's not that they were they weren't you know they weren't going to take you it's that you weren't a professional child actor <laughs> no sure wasn't <laughs> All right, question six. Fred Rogers passed away in 2003, but we're in the middle of a resurgence of nostalgia around his career and for the Mick feelings he inspired across several generations. Name both of the major movies released in recent years with him as the focus, a documentary in 2018 and a 2019 film based on an Esquire article. Okay, so um, the one that's that just recently came out is called um, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Yes. And then the other one is Won't You Be My Neighbor? Yes. Yes. Uh, so Pittsburgh claims him as mm-hmm. one of its own. Uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood ran from 1968 to 2001 and was produced at WQED Studios in Pittsburgh. We love him. <laughs> <laughs> Question seven. The crocodile hunter Steve Irwin owned and operated a zoological park in Queensland. All of the proceeds from the Irwin's television shows went toward animal conservation and building new exhibits. What is the name of this attraction located at 1638 Steve Irwin Way, Birois, Queensland? Is it like, I don't know, the Crocodile Center or like the Crocodile Zoo or crikey, a Crocodile Center or something like that? What is it? <laughs> is that it? No? It's called the Australia Zoo. The- <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> Sorry. It's just the Australia Zoo? The Australia Damn. Zoo. <sighs> I was um, doing so good too. I had a good, I had a good thing going. <laughs> 
<laughs> Steve Irwin's message was obviously to be kind to animals, and he believed in conservation through exciting education. As we all know, he passed away in 2006 while snorkeling along the Great Barrier Reef after a stingray barb went into his heart. Ugh. In 2009, a new species of land snail called Crikey Steve Irwinny no! was named after him. <laughs> and his wife, Terry, daughter, Bindi, and son, Bob, continue to work at the Australia Zoo and continue his legacy. He is buried at an undisclosed location at the Australia Zoo. I'm what? I just got chills. What? So you could be going to the Australia Zoo, walking around, petting animals, learning about things, and Steve Irwin himself is right below your feet. That freaks me out. What? <laughs> I didn't make it up. I know you didn't. <laughs> Did you hear that Bindi just got married? Do you remember when she was... I, I remember, remember when, when she, she was, was born. born. <laughs> you know, okay, so like Terry was an American, yes. and I was like, how did they meet? They met because like... He was running a zoo, like it, it was just like called the reptile, the Beerwall Reptile Center or something okay. at that point. And she was a tourist from America, uh, met him, started talking to him, and then like she moved there for him, and then they got married. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> we didn't cry at all during the Stalin part, but oh, <laughs> <laughs> mm. it's just so nice. Question eight. Oprah Winfrey ran her eponymous daytime talk show for 25 years with viewers looking to her for recommendations on what to buy, try, and of course, read. In September 2005, she selected the memoir A Million Little Pieces for her book club. But after it came to light, the book was a total fabrication. Oprah had what author accused of literary forgery back on her show to explain himself. I can see I can see the book cover yeah. in my mind's eye. It's mm -hmm. James Fry. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. So Fry appeared on Oprah's show again in January 2006 to explain himself and contend that the same drug addiction that the memoir recounted led him to lie in his writing. No. Mm -hmm. Oprah had none of that. No, though. she did not. Um, and she excoriated Fry on television and told him that she felt like he betrayed millions of readers. She she not only excoriated him in front of millions of people and like ruined his reputation and his writing career, but he thanked her for it. Like that is how powerful Oprah is. <laughs> And that book, I remember when that whole scandal came out, mm -hmm. we moved it at Schmarns and Bubble to memoir from memoirs to fiction. Like it, we just like <laughs> just re-tagged it and just put yep. it in a different place. Yeah. Boop. All right. Speaking of nonfiction, um, question nine. If there's one white guy in Hollywood loved by everyone, it's Tom Hanks, or as Esquire calls him, America's dad. I'll name you four of his films and you tell me the real life person he portrayed in that movie. Okay. All this right. Is Okay. First, Apollo 13. Uh, you know, I... Uh, Apollo 13. Was he... And I can't think of a single astronaut right now. <laughs> no, I got this. Uh, Dan? No. Not Dan. John? That's a good guess. Um, I don't know. Tell me. <laughs> Jim Lavelle. Jim Lavelle. Okay. okay. Second, Saving Mr. Banks. Uh, he portrayed Mr. Banks. Mr. Richard Banks. Nope. Mr. Mr. Banks. Hey, we're going to use alertedly rules. Banks. <laughs> Walt Disney. Oh, damn. <laughs> I was nowhere that near. That movie was about Mary Poppins. Oh, like sure. Like the making okay. of the movie yes. Mary Poppins. All right. Number three, The Post. 
Is this the one about the Washington Post? Yes. From like the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's somebody real. He was, yeah, chief editor Ben Bradley. Ben Bradley, yeah. And then finally, Charlie Wilson's war. He portrayed Charlie Wilson. Correct. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, By the way, Hanks is ranked as the fifth highest all-time box office star in North America with a total gross of over $4.9 billion with a B at the North American box office, which is an average of $100.8 million per film. Wow. There's also an asteroid named after him called Asteroid 12818. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks is one word. Tom Hanks. <laughs> Tom Hanks. Um, there's, a, there's a profile out about him in the New York Times, I mm-hmm. think. And it's either written. Oh, it's so good. I, I haven't read it yet because I, I need to like finagle my way onto like actually getting the article. Because mm-hmm. it's like, you can subscribe to the New York yeah. Times. Um, it's behind a paywall. But is it it's either written by Taffy Brodness or Ackner or Vanessa Gorietis and I can't remember which one but they're both great writers and good like profile writers but I heard it's like just the most lovely yeah thing you know what it is Taffy oh is it Taffy yeah. okay yeah she's great mm-hmm. love it and finally, question 10. Carried by 95% of all public television stations in the U.S., The Joy of Painting was a hit series from 1983 to 1994 starring what happy little tree lover who did the show for free? That was Bob Ross. It was Bob Ross. <laughs> so The Joy of Painting regularly featured a rotating cast of real happy little animals yes. with a tiny squirrel named Peapod, Peapod. who this got the funny. bulk of the airtime. <laughs> According to Bob Ross, Peapod liked to sit in his pocket yes. while he painted he showed people um also i mean maybe i'm gonna pop a bubble here but his signature hairstyle which was like a puffy afro on a white mm-hmm. guy was actually a perm yes that wasn't his real hair um he got it because it was easier to style in the mornings than his natural hair and ultimately he couldn't really change the hairstyle because it became like his you know it was on the yeah. logo for all of his products and everything like mm-hmm. that and he did do the show for free um no like got no payment from the Mm -hmm. show it's just he ended up making money off of like his sponsored products and stuff like that out of it but also just truly just a wonderful person just a i realize like a big common thread between a lot of these are they were on like pbs Mm -hmm. or they were on like educational programs Uh, uh. (laughs) oh yeah well i mean a lot of this is from my from our childhoods yeah. oh, you know yeah. like i mean i remember watching bob ross on pbs mm-hmm. and like basically going completely catatonic because his voice and his art is so relaxing yeah you know so and Steve he and knew I, that yeah steve and i still watch like a couple of episodes of, <laughs> of bob ross before we go to bed just kind of like chill out man oh that was great so, I, yeah a I palate feel, cleanser i feel so much better good i'm glad yeah, that was great Thanks so much, Jewel. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, yeah, uh, please, uh, you know, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify now. I'm sure yeah. that's old news. Yeah. Um, please rate, review, and subscribe. Tell a friend. And uh, thanks so much for listening to our Dictator December. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we'll catch you next time. <laughs> Bye. Bye.